Say, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello, and welcome back. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. It's nice to be back here behind the mic with you guys. Glad to have you back. Um, I I wanted to bounce something off you guys. So Not physically. No. Um, I mean, we, let's not rule anything yeah. out. It's a workplace. But, yeah. Um, so this, uh, this weekend, there's a movie coming out. Called Ford versus Ferrari. Have you guys sure. heard about this oh, movie? Yeah. It's mm-hmm. about Gerald Ford. Um, yeah, yeah, right. Thank you. And yeah. uh, and Dario Ferrari. No, <laughs> uh, no. It's about it's it's just about the uh, the the effort by the Ford Motor Company to build a race car that right. could beat Ferrari at Le Mans. Mm-hmm. I think it's from the '60s or '70s or something. And uh, but I'm I'm bringing it up here. There's no square legal angle except for the stylization of the title because it's oh. Ford versus Ferrari, and all it is is a V, not the oh, VS. No. Oh, the uh, but the, but but it does not the involve legal styling. <laughs> That's right, the legal styling. And I I was this was curious to me. There's no legal battle in the case in the movie, as far as I as far as I know it. It's about a literal road race. Right. Normally, when you see it in sports, it's VS. Yeah. Or yeah. and well, and then even in like other movie titles, uh, Frost v Nixon. Yeah. Well, that was that the, versus Nixon. That's just called Frost Nixon. Oh right. All right. It's a, it's a, yeah. the you last time that I I like sorry. it. I like this being adopted. It's um, it's shorter, punchier. That's why it's done that way in, sure. in legal. I think I would things. do that too, but my brain is broken from working here. That's true. <laughs> yeah. The only other time I've ever seen this in the title of a movie was uh, Batman v Superman: Dawn of Justice, which also just had to V. But that was all about a legal proceeding between <laughs> right. the two of them. Right. It was all in court. That one. a very high stakes Supreme Court case. Yeah. Just 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 to make sure I wasn't going absolutely crazy. I looked at uh, Kramer versus Kramer, which is uh, about a divorce, and sure. that's a movie from the 70s, literally about a court proceeding, but it's VS. Explain it to me. I love that your Can't. idea of Don't know. to prove you weren't going crazy, <laughs> you then Googled movie titles to check this, which it's is a new... actually a sign of the opposite, Alex. Uh, well, I mean, that's that's a matter of opinion. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, uh, so that's what's going on uh, in my brain case. Uh, uh, we have other great. things to talk about, though, I'm sure. We did. A, we had a great chat with Natalie Rodriguez uh, that we're, you're going to hear in a little bit that was all about uh, the issue of how, what what law firms and the legal industry in general are doing to address issues of mental health, um, which are obviously always a very serious issue in the the legal industry, and uh, whether or not we need more than just meditation programs and napping pods yeah. <laughs> it, yes. we didn't talk about napping pods but we could have because it fits yeah. in with we talked yeah. about yoga oh, okay yeah. yeah but before then yes alex has a news story for us i do uh and then there are some other news stories uh but we're gonna, we're gonna talk about this one first um there's a really interesting ruling um in the sort of privacy civil rights uh space out of uh, massachusetts this week um where a federal judge uh, basically struck down the government's practice of expansive uh, searches of cell phones and laptops mm. at airports and other international ports of entry. Um, the court basically said that conducting those searches um, without reasonable suspicion or a warrant uh, violates the Fourth Amendment. All so these, all these uh, questions about what can be done with phones is a thing we've seen a lot. Where, mm-hmm. Because it's such an interesting question, you know, how does the law adapt to 40 years ago, if you reached in someone's pocket, there was a pretty finite amount of information yeah. that could be in there. Right. You know, nowadays you've got this thing in your phone that has, or in your pocket that has every piece of information. We're you walking could around with supercomputers uh, on our persons. Right. I mean, I remember there was that case with the with the, the it was a terrorist or a suspected terrorist and the and the iPhone of what you could do to unlock it. Oh, so it's yeah. very very interesting stuff. But walk us through what happened this week. Yeah, that's true. And this is even um, somewhat more elemental than that. So let's let's situate. We don't talk. I mean, people I think have a grasp on the Fourth Amendment, but it's it's important to talk about sort of what it provides for, and then we talk about like what, what the case did. I think people generally understand that to conduct a search, 
The government either needs to get a warrant from a judge or demonstrate some kind of reasonable suspicion of wrongdoing or, or you know, whatever, some other kind of activity. Um, but neither of those things are really in play when we go and travel at the airport internationally, right? Yeah. Like there's no, no one has a warrant or a suspicion that you're doing something wrong when you, you know, put your bag on the, on the x-ray right. conveyor belt or you walk through a full body scanner. And the reason for that is because there is something that has cropped up over, you know, several decades of jurisprudence that is uh, what's called the border exception to the Fourth Amendment. And that just basically means um, that the government has an interest in sort of securing its borders sure. and that provides something of a we wouldn't call it a carve out like I say it's just called an exception to the terms of the fourth amendment and also people realize that they're crossing a border so you're assuming some of that lessened yeah, privacy right. protection so yeah the, yeah the, the the idea is like the you the individual you have a a, a lesser expect or a, a diminished expectation right. of privacy when sure. you go across the border things like that um so that's basically how it works but um, the government was sort of interpreting that as just saying um, they, they, they viewed themselves as having the right to confiscate uh, people's phones at the border. And not only that, but, you know, sort of access them and go through them for various things. Mm-hmm. And that was what was sort of in play in this case. Um, the judge who heard this case sort of basically said this is not this exception that we understand is not some kind of blank check for you to do whatever you want. Um, so the case was spearheaded by the ACLU on behalf of 11 international travelers who uh, claimed that their phones were confiscated at the airport when they were crossing internationally mm-hmm. um, without cause. Um, and the government was just, it, it gave them, you know, ac- unfettered access to a litany of information that's on your phone. As you said, Bill, it's, you know, it's your, it's your entire personhood and more yeah. in your phone. Um, and so uh, the judge who was hearing the case was Denise Casper uh, in Massachusetts, as I said, and she ruled in favor of these uh, travelers on Monday, um, she basically said that the the government was being you know too aggressive in its search methods, and basically she tried to cut right to this this balance between security and privacy that I was talking about with the border exception. This this sort of sums it up uh, pretty nicely. This is a quote from her ruling: "It is correct, as defendants note, that no court has yet required a warrant for a search of an electronic device at the border." There is, however, growing precedent in the weighing of governmental interests against privacy interests at the border of requiring a showing of reasonable suspicion, at least for forensic searches of digital devices. So well, that's pretty interesting that there's um, she mentions this growing body of precedent. And that has to be relatively new because of what we're talking about. Smartphones contain so much. So yeah. What kind of stuff is she talking about there? So the the decision um, is kind of linked very explicitly to. Uh, this Supreme Court case from 2014, which is called Riley uh, versus California. And that case uh, struck down warrantless phone seizures in the context of uh, being arrested. They're saying, like, you know, if you have an arrest warrant, you need a separate search warrant to get a hold of someone's cell phone. So this is a little bit different because we're not talking about people who have been arrested. These are yeah. people who are just traveling and going right. across an international border. But the judge basically said that the heart of the Riley decision remains relevant, and that is that, as Bill as Bill hinted at at the beginning of the segment, that ex- inspecting electronic devices is just fundamentally different from you know just like you know tossing someone's suitcase or right. going in their pockets or seeing whatever's there because it just carries you know crazy amounts of personal information. Um, so that's was that was sort of where she drew the line. She says like. Yes, you have more liberty at the border, but it's not just carte blanche, anything you want. Um, 
uh, interestingly enough, she also um, the, the government was obviously very aggressively defending this policy and saying, "Look, we have a we have a mandate to protect national security, right. and this is how we do that." Um, she she noted uh, or call, called into question some of the uh, the sort of government's actual policy justifications for it, which yeah. I thought was interesting. She sort of went beyond the mere legal question. Uh, she the the government cited thirty four cases. Uh, of prosecutions that arose from these kind of, uh, you know, writ large cell phone searches. Uh, but that 34 arose out of about 108,000 searches of wow. people's phones so many. over six years. So she was like, this is a very tiny fraction of just, you know, warrantless searches that you're doing. Right. So that's a lot of privacy be- being given up for yeah. a very narrow. Right. It's sort of a blunt instrument yeah. uh, for a very small problem. Definitely. Right. And that and, and she, she she went out of her way to mention that. Was this ever. So w- is this sort of exactly what the ACLU wanted out of this ruling? Or, I mean, did they did, could the court have gone even further in what they said? There was. Imp- yeah. This is important to note here. So, um as I said, there's a there's you know you you can uh, government people who are looking to search something can rely on either having a warrant or a you know reasonable suspicion. Now uh, the ACLU was pushing the judge to say you need a written warrant from a judge to go through someone's cell phone if you stop them at the border. Um, now uh, the ACLU was happy with this ruling. They they you know put out a statement saying it was good, but uh, that uh, instead of sort of going that far, the judge said. All you need to do is demonstrate a reasonable suspicion when you're at the border. So she said, okay, I'm not going to give a ruling that says, like, that would be, first of all, very hard to sort of kind of ascertain, to have a a warrant in hand before people are just randomly coming into the country. So she said... In, instead, the government needs to demonstrate this reasonable suspicion uh, of people are crossing. A heightened level of scrutiny. A heightened level yeah. of scrutiny. And so, you know, from where we stand now, uh, you know, so that th- this is what it says they need. Now, what reasonable suspicion means in the context of people just crossing the border is certainly something um, that could give rise to more litigation. Um, now, either side probably has grounds for an appeal here if the ACLU says we want to go further or the government wants to peel back the authority that they had. Um Either side could appeal. Uh, as we stand here now, uh, no one's made a move yet. The judge gave the parties until Monday uh, to notify her of their future plans, um, and it certainly could go uh, either way. For our second story this week, we're gonna sort of do a riff on a on a on a on a common pro se story. I feel like we talk a lot about uh, attorneys behaving badly. Yep. Pretty fun thing to talk about. If we you're behaving badly, we will find you. And we we often, often do, but we often find it because a judge calls them out for doing that. That's true. They get bench slapped. Uh, we're going to have one of those later we in are. the show. Yes. Uh, but this week we're flipping the script and we're going to talk about judges behaving badly. You know, we've talked about that a little bit on the show. You know how much I've liked talking about the West Virginia Supreme Court yes, justices totally. that got in trouble. So what do we have this time? Well, this one's got this one's sort of like Mad Libs. We've got there's drunk fighting, there's Prada handbags. There's White Castle. Yeah. Great. There's wire fraud. Hey. I can keep going. Or we can just we can <laughs> or get we into could, the story. Yeah, let's just, well, let's just fill in some of the gaps between the this. Mad Libs. So first up, last week, uh, federal prosecutors indicted a judge in Harris County, uh, Texas, which is Houston, um, yeah. on seven counts of wire fraud, accusing her of using $25,000 in campaign donations on personal expenses. Now, this has nothing to do with the fact that we could we could have a whole different discussion about how weird it is that in certain parts of the country judges are elected and uh, yes. hold political yeah, office. Yeah, that it's like partisan elections. Everything else. Yeah, yeah. But this is just purely that she was uh, misusing those funds, allegedly. Uh, so the prosecutors say that uh, Alexandra Smoots Thomas um, 
solicited this money to for her re-election campaigns in 2012 and 2016, but in reality was using the money for mortgage payments, for tuition payments, for travel expenses, and for various luxury items. The luxury items were... Is that where Prada comes in? That's it is great. Where they were, they were, they were mentioned by name in the uh, in the indictment. Um, among specific purchases that were mentioned, uh, a ten thousand dollar payment for private school tuition and a eleven hundred dollar Prada handbag that was purchased. I don't know why this was pertinent, but in Las Vegas. Amber, did you see? Were, were, Amber was were you? We, I was in Las Vegas. That's okay. where I was last week. Um, <laughs> I can't say that I looked at any Prada handbags, but yeah, it, there's. Did you consider embezzling any to, funds? I wish there were funds to embezzle, guys. Right. That's a good really point. To do here. At this Law is 360. this is a compelling reason to buy knockoffs. If she bought a Prado handbag, it would have been, <laughs> been cheaper. Maybe you don't raise any right. red well, flags. Well, the Canal I don't really Street know. of Houston. That's we're, true. We're joking around about this because it's on the face of it. If these allegations are true, it's hard to feel sorry for somebody that goes off and buys a luxury handbag right. with with uh, funds that were supposed to be for a reelection, but. What does she say about this, or her attorney? Her attorney says that this was that this is like a politically motivated uh, prosecution. That she's a Democrat, and that the the Trump administration U.S. attorney is coming after her for various reasons. Uh, quote: This is a purely political prosecution. She has not defrauded anybody. That you know, and that even if she did do anything wrong, that it was you know that normally this would be handled through you would repay the money or whatever that it wouldn't be this this you're being prosecuted in bad faith or correct yes uh uh, all right so that checks off a couple of things you had noted we got we we, so she's uh you know rung up on wire fraud various Prada handbags are Um, in the mix but i haven't heard about white castle yet oh yeah and i'm always wanting to hear about that we backloaded this segment the second part's better okay Okay. uh (laughs) this yeah i mean that's pretty garden variety stuff like a government official is is, sure, is wilding out. But sure, well, well, these these are some government officials wilding, are wilding out. out. Sorry, you have the floor. So the Indiana Supreme Court uh, this week ruled that three Indiana judges would be suspended, although ultimately they will be reinstated, which I think is important to note here, uh, over their involvement in a drunken brawl outside of an Indianapolis White Castle that ended in a shooting. Well, Guys. wait. Well, well, now, first off, let's be clear: no one died. Thank you. I was like, let's, let's 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 add that clear. But okay, so we got three judges. I'm hanging out with my judicial homies. Yep, we're going to the White Castle. Yep. What fill in the gaps here? So they were in. So judges Sabrina Bell, Andrew Adams, and Bradley Jacobs were in Indianapolis for a uh, judges conference in now April. It's all starting to make sense. Conferences are always crazy. Yeah, I mean conferences tend to get lit. I mean, what can we say? We've all been to them. We've yeah. seen them. So yeah. around 3 a.m. after a night of drinking, uh, they decided to go to White Castle. I I feel like I would be remiss if I did not mention that. There was a large White Castle right outside of my college, and <laughs> uh, like the idea of like a drunk fight at White Castle just really brings back big Fordham energy for me. Sure. And so I just I felt like I needed to note that this like this story really really has a personal angle for me. There was one step away not from that I was drunkenly fighting outside of the White Castle, but you probably saw plenty. Saw it. I mean, yeah. I mean, you are not under questioning here unless you want to be. Uh, but the, yeah, I had there. There was a, a White Castle steps away from my high school, so that was the night of many. That that was the. Uh, the the uh, site of many right. sort of debaucherous evenings. Nothing quite to this level. No. But, uh, so around three a.m., they're there. They're drunk. They're hanging out at White Castle, eating a crave case, <laughs> uh, and an doing S- Harold and Kumar cosplay. Right. Whatever. <laughs> sure. An SUV apparently drove past the group and uh, yelled something. So that prompted uh, an intoxicated Judge Bell to quote extend her middle finger to the occupants of the SUV. Very like specific language. Yeah. Uh, 
The car then stopped. Two men got out and a fight broke out. Uh, Judge Jacobs pinned one man to the ground at one point, and Judge Adams was kicking the man in the back at another point. These are all from pulled from legal documents. Yeah, uh, these th- this sort of breakdown of how it all went. Um, the fight then ended uh, with uh, one man pulling out a gun and shooting <laughs> Judge Adams and Judge Jacobs, both of whom were injured but are fully recovered. This is wild. Truly, I mean, truly. I, I know I, I say that occasionally about stories we cover, but this one really. It, you're you're just recounting it. It's like we are watching a movie. It's yeah. crazy. This probably wasn't the case, but I like to imagine that they were wearing the robes when they saw it down. <laughs> wearing, wearing powdered wigs. Or the wigs, too, yeah. Sure, yeah or even yeah. with the gavels. Okay. I don't know, yes. So um, I'm so glad we've talked about this, but it is serious for judges to act this way. Well, sure. Um, so what happened it's, to them? It's serious for anybody to be shot, uh, and certainly well, shot at a, at a fine, fast and food like, I would argue, I would argue that like grown professional people in any profession should not be fighting outside of White Castles. Yeah. I, I agree with all of that, but we put extra public trust into judges right. to be even-tempered and to Good be point. deciding really big, we want you, issues if you're within gonna be, the community. If you're going to be fighting, we want you fighting outside of a Shake Shack. We want you fighting outside <laughs> of a high-end fast food eatery. Okay, but yes. seriously, what did fast happen casual. to them after this all came to light? So, obviously, the, uh, obviously the Indiana Supreme Court wasn't thrilled about the the event um they suspended all three uh without pay for periods ranging from 30 to 60 days um uh, this will end the disciplinary proceedings from this and all three will be back on the bench in mid-january one of the judges and i don't want to misstate it so i don't remember who it was but one of the judges was charged with a misdemeanor for like battery for his involvement in the fight i think that's all resolved the quote from the indiana supreme court The effectiveness of the judiciary ultimately rests on the trust and confidence that citizens confer on judges. The court later added that uh, the judges, quote, alcohol-fueled actions that (laughs) night, quote, fell far short uh, of the state's code of judicial conduct and, quote, gravely undermined public trust in the dignity and decency of the Indiana judiciary. That's kind of what you were saying, Amber. Yeah. I mean, there's there's literally a whole How do you go before one of these judges? I mean, yeah, you know. You're, you, you've done, I mean, it'll be an interesting proceeding the first time that they have a, a drunken disorderly in front of them. That's, that's a good point, yes. Uh, so the judge's actions, th- this is the final kicker from the, the opinion, the court said the judge's actions were, quote, not merely embarrassing on a personal level, they discredited the entire Indiana judiciary. But obviously those words didn't really mean that much because they will all be back on the bench. So it will be interesting to see... Uh, Interesting to see what, what, like I said, what happens when the first time these folks have to deal with someone who was drunk at a White Castle. The nation's top law firms talk a lot about mental health these days. Every week, a new firm unveils a yoga program or a meditation tool or some other effort aimed at attorney wellness. But if firms really want to combat sky-high rates of depression, alcoholism, and suicide, experts say it will require more fundamental changes to how the legal industry functions. 
Here to discuss the issue with us is Law360 editor-at-large, Natalie Rodriguez. Welcome back to the show, Natalie. Hey, Amber. Thanks for having me. A many-time guest and now a podcaster in your own right. Yes, yeah. yes. Although I'm so excited to, to come back to where it kind of all began. <laughs> well, <laughs> I want to get into this uh, important issue, but let's let's plug your other show really quick. It's called The Term. Yes, Supreme Court uh, podcast. Every week we give you kind of top uh, highlights in like 15 minutes or less. It's a great listen. Yeah, yeah so um, let's go from that happy moment to talking about what's wrong with attorneys and how things can be pretty bleak in this industry. Can you Again, sort of... which is why you always have me. I know, we do. Yeah. I'm sorry, Natalie. We bring you on for the really uh, heavy topics, but you're really good at explaining them. And I think for purposes of the conversation as we move on, it'll be good for people to know just sort of a baseline of how are the rates of all these bad things we talked about, like alcoholism and, and other problems in the industry? What's going on for lawyers right now? Yeah, like, I mean, you, you wrote a story a couple months ago that, that described them as alarming rates. So yes. sort of walk us through what we know. So, so just to kind of set the stage a little bit, I think as some of our listeners, some of the listeners will probably know, you know, three years ago, the ABA and the Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation came out with this landmark study about uh, well-being and wellness in lawyers. Um, and it said a lot of, it gave for the first time really concrete data to what a lot of onlookers already kind of knew, which yeah. is that things are pretty bad, yeah. you know, for, for lawyers. Um, you know, they have sky-high rates of depression, alcoholism, stress, you know, when compared to the general public. Right. Yeah, every time I see one of those headlines in, in online that's like, which industry has the worst whatever, fill in the blank, I'm always like, well, lawyers are going to be at the top of this. Yeah. And they inevitably are. And if they're not at the top, they're, they're really close to yeah. it usually. I remember when that study came out that it was like, this is data to finally support something that anecdotally many lawyers already knew or suspected that, you know, that many of their colleagues are under more stress than perhaps is healthy. Exactly. So for, for the story that I wrote that, um, you know, a few months back, I was looking at that, you know, to see kind of what's changed, if yeah. anything. Um, and it's hard because we don't have any more data, mm -hmm. not at that level of, of that ABA Betty Ford study. Um, but there is... Um, you know, some data about suicide rates, um, a lot of data about kind of increased participation at lawyer assistance programs mm -hmm. across okay. the country, which is, is, I think, you know, can be taken both ways. It could be like a really good sign that people now with the conversation started are going to yeah. these assistance programs or, you know, things are just getting worse and <laughs> they need yeah. to go more. Right. Um, They're seeking help. But I mean, are they seeking help because things are getting worse? Right, exactly. Right. You know, and anecdotally, you know, what I've been hearing from a lot of folks is that, you know, it's the conversation's great. But there's still kind of a lot of issues. You know, what, what jump-started that story for me really was I, I was hearing from a consultant who had seen like six suicides at law firms yeah. in like the last year, which wow. was way more than she's used to seeing. Um, you know, and, and I can't say that there was a spike or anything like that. But, you know, a lot of these suicides aren't necessarily headline things. We yeah. don't hear about them. Yeah. Um, and even people at, the, at a firm where it happens might not know because, you know, not just the law firm leaders, but the families don't really want to publicize sure. that it was like a suicide. So we're not having that larger discussion necessarily yeah. about whether or not things are getting better or worse. But it seems like the, um, the, the ABA study and maybe some of the some of the effort, some of the, the discussion since then, even if it's not uh, hit, hitting on on these issues quite enough. It seems like firms are starting to take some steps and starting to roll out programs. We mentioned it in the up in sort of the intro here that firms are, you know, whether or not it's effective, they are starting to to take this a little bit more seriously than they used to. For sure, hundred percent. You know, 
10 years ago, you would have never seen a law firm leader talking about wellness, yeah. well-being, mental health in a public forum. Now it's right. happening all the time. Um, Denton's and Kirkland, they've rolled out dedicated wellness officers. Again, a position you would never have seen in Beck Law mm-hmm. um, not too long ago. And, you know, the firms are, are rolling out a host of, of different initiatives from alcohol-free events like Old Tree had at um, one of its uh, attorney retreats recently, yoga, meditation, art therapy. There's even... You know, a firm I, I heard uh, bringing in puppies once a week or, yeah. or so, so that you know so their attorneys can like yeah, play like with them. Anything they can think of that would be like, what would make people have less stress in this super stressed <laughs> out profession? Uh, puppies, art, um, yoga. So yeah, it seems exactly. like it's across the board. Exactly. Well, uh, those things sound good. I mean, I'd, I'd like some yoga here in our office, or maybe sure. some puppies running around would be pretty good. But is that enough? I mean. What are people saying about whether or not these kinds of things, which, I mean, I'm joking a little because they are sort of light surface touches to what can be a really dark and deep problem. Yeah. Is that kind of stuff enough? I mean, is it enough to lower the stress of an attorney by having a yoga in the office once a month or something? So the quick answer is no. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, Abraco, our, our senior legal industry reporter, she, she just had a great story last week um, kind of looking at this issue and this question in particular. And she had this great quote from Paula Davis-Lack, the founder of the Stress and Resilience Institute. And she said, you can't yoga your way out of burnout or having to bill 2,000 hours a year. Mm. Um, and I thought that was a great quote. Yeah. And, and yeah. that actually really kind of resonated with something I'd heard from the head of the Illinois Bars Lawyer Assistance Program, who also said, you know, there's this disconnect that, that's happening mm-hmm. with attorneys. You know, we're telling them your wellness and your mental health and everything is top priority. But now bill all these hours and, you know, work late into the night and through your weekends. Right. It's like the messaging has got there, but the the actual dedication to fixing this problem maybe <laughs> maybe isn't there yet. It's it's yeah, I mean, imagine being, you know, being told to bill ninety hours a week and then like there's yoga in, in on, yeah. on Monday. Like when are you gonna do it? You well know? yeah, so- that's the thing, right? Like, I mean, even if it's offered, can you even do it if right. you're trying to like meet these really demanding client needs and yeah. billable hours and all of that. Well, and the other thing too that I would imagine even as you roll these programs out, that if you don't have a broader culture change of like what, you know, is expected there's definitely going to be a, a, a reticence to use these things that even you don't want to be seen as the person going to get mental health counseling or right. any of these other programs. You don't want to be the person in the hallway outside the meeting that like so it's it's, um, you know, even if even if you have the time that I, I'm sure that there's some um, uh, uh, people are hesitant to to be seen as the person who needs this kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. You know, Diana Uchiyama, who was the head of the Illinois Bar mm-hmm. Lawyer Assistance Program, you know, she, she mentioned to me how to detox from alcoholism, which is a major issue in the industry, um, you usually need to go through a 30-day program. But how do you do that if you can barely take a vacation? Right. Like, how do you at, go to HR and ask for that time? Right. You can barely take your paternity leave. You can barely, like, yeah. use your vacation days. How are you going to go then go take 30 days off? Exactly. And, you know, I, I, I don't want to completely, like, bash on all these big law firms because it's it, they have made significant strides you know, sure. in, in terms of the communication and and putting resources and real money towards a lot of these programs yeah. um, in the last few years. But, you know, the, the concern among mental health experts and well-being experts is just that, you know, that they might rest on these laurels yeah, of yeah, yeah. like yeah. putting yoga and meditation and it's just not enough. Well, yeah, it sounds like what we really need is a 
a big structural overhaul. So are we ever going to get that? I mean, I feel like I think back to the brief time when I was a lawyer and had to track things in six minute increments. And it really does dominate your life when yeah. you're thinking about the billable hour all the time. Well, there you go. That was, I feel like we were dancing around the B word. The B word. Uh, yeah. You know. I mean, is the billable hour the, at, at the root here? I mean, if we're talking, it seems like we've gone from, well, we're rolling out mental health programs, but people are working too much and they're under too much stress and there's too many, there's too many incentives to work these insane hours. What's driving people to work the insane hour other than the billable hour? You know, that it's, it's so it's, does that need to change? Um, yes, except we've been having that conversation for 15 years. Mm. Like yeah. bill, the getting rid of the billable hour has been on the table for at least 15 years. Um, you know, this is something I've been discussing in-house with my editors and with experts, you know, and, and it's like, yeah, we can keep saying it needs to go away. But yeah. the reality is, it's probably not. Right. Like, it's also hard to be. I mean, there are firms that are taking on different fee structures, but it's hard to be the first firm that's like, you know what? We've eliminated the billable hour entirely. For sure. (laughs) Um, Because you really put yourself out there in the way that the viability of your firm and and keeping it afloat in a world where everyone else is doing it the other way. And it might work for some firms, but for some other firms, it might not. Um, So I think it's it's just going to have to be more experimentation uh, among firms, maybe cutting down the billable hour rates. I mean, these are some massive benchmarks that a lot of firms are asking for. Yeah, I think it's such an interesting conversation to have, both in the context of, of like, you know, that these things are good in a, in and of themselves that you want to address mental health and and but even from a bottom line perspective or even from a talent perspective at these firms that if you don't address these these issues it's not just that you should be addressing mental health issues it's that you're going to start losing smart people in a younger generation to in-house jobs and to government Absolutely. jobs and all sorts of other places where some of the smartest people who could be at your firm are no longer going to you know that 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 the, the money is no longer quite enough of a draw to get people to do this kind of thing. And this even goes beyond mental health, which is why we're talking about it. But we talk about these same kind of things and had have had Natalie on the show to talk about it with um, the pressures mothers face in mm-hmm. the workplace. So the billable hour plays a big role in that as well. It does. It sure does. And I mean, you know, I, I, I see some hope. April's story, I think, gave us some hope um, that there's – she mentioned um, Davis Lack again mm-hmm. was piloting a program that's basically like staffing with a relief program. And this is something that you can see in like the medical profession where, you know, hospitals and the like where they have, you know, person A on call one weekend and person B on call yeah. the, se- oh, the second yeah. weekend. So at least you get one weekend off every two yeah. weeks, right. you know. Um, so, so, I mean, I think – you know, maybe we'll see some change kind of down the line but the al- fa- along, the, along those ways. But the fact that we're speaking about other industries and porting whole different structures in sort of illustrates how big of a problem it yeah. is and how much of a sort of outside-the-box thinking that it's going to take to maybe fix it. Exactly. Natalie, thanks for coming on to explain this. Um, of course, we'll be monitoring this for the next decade, guys, yeah. however long it takes. At least. <laughs> well, thank you again so much for having me. I always enjoy talking about this issue. Thanks, Natalie. We like to end our show with something offbeat, and Bill, I know you've got a good one for us. Yeah, we were talking about judges 
doing some dumb stuff earlier, so we got to spread the love around. And now we're talk. back to playing the hits here. Back to the good old-fashioned bench slap. Yes. Um, the Seventh Circuit really just crucified a guy this week uh, <laughs> over... Uh, it was a lawsuit that was filed against Mars, the food company. Um, the court called a brief that this attorney filed a shameful waste of judicial resources, and I assure you this second part is true. They called it a monstrosity. Wow. Um, we often on this show critique legal writing and filings. We talk a lot about the way judges write opinions, the way um, attorneys write briefs. Right. Monstrosity is a new one for me. I haven't heard a judge call it's something tough. that. That's pretty I mean, heavy. I mean, I think in law school, one of the key things you want to learn is how to write a brief that doesn't get you called Get, get your call, brief called a monstrosity. Yeah. That's like one of the key things you want to take away. It's a real baseline to get right. through. Yeah, yeah, that makes so sense. Non-monstrosity what, doctrine. What was, this, <laughs> what was this one all about? So it's fairly serious subject matter, so we just want to be clear that we're not like joking about the general idea of this kind of case. It was a discrimination claim against Mars. A woman named Edith McMurray unsuccessfully sued Mars for discriminating based on age, disability, sex, race, like the full gambit. Yeah. Um, the the case was not successful, and it was ruled by a lower court to be, like, fully baseless. Um, and so, but nonetheless, they they uh, appealed. McMurray and um, her attorney, a guy named Jordan T. Hoffman, uh, appealed this case to the Seventh Circuit. That's the real, like, thing of it. It's like, we've all seen kind of you know, wonky, crazy lawsuits that bubble sure. up in this one quarter or another. But the fact that we have now, we then ascended to the Seventh Circuit, which I think had something to do with the severity of the language here. Um, but I, I, as, as we've indicated, it seems that the the appeal went about as well as the uh, as the first go around. Yeah, I think it goes without saying that this was not a, they didn't win the case. No. Uh. <laughs> well, um, so yeah, we've, we've established that we're not really commenting on the merits here. This no. is just about the way it was... The way the filing presented, but I want to get into that. What what made it so bad? Here's the key. Uh, here's the key lead graph from the summary of the ruling. The appeal is utterly frivolous, and McMurray's monstrosity of an appellate brief is incoherent. So we order her lawyer, Jordan T. Hoffman, to show cause why he should not be sanctioned or otherwise disciplined. So like turn, and that's the other thing. Like whatever is the whatever this woman is uh, you know experiencing or whatever. Like the, the judge very clearly turns to the lawyer. Oh yes, and to be clear, says, to be clear, yeah. right now we are dragging the lawyer. Oh yeah, well, I, yeah, just to be like so. I mean, what 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 gave rise to this? So like we we know the judges think it's a monstrosity. Why? There's some good. <laughs> there's some other good quotes from in here that sort of illustrate this quote. The hopelessness of McMurray's cause didn't deter her lawyer, Jordan Hoffman, from signing and submitting a bizarre appellate brief laden with assertions that have no basis in the record and arguments that have no basis in the law. Well, if you have no basis in the record and no basis in the law, I mean, you might win. Uh, The brief was later described (laughs) as... McMurray's brief, which spans 86 interminable pages, is neither concise nor clear. It is chock full of impenetrable arguments and unsupported assertions, and it is organized in ways that escape our understanding. This is a bad review of this brief. Chock full. Zero stars on Yelp for this brief so far. Would not recommend to friends. Let's see what let's 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 see what else they got. So, um, uh, Hoffman in this brief um, accused the defendants. For the first time, this wasn't in the record, of criminal obstruction of justice um, and said that the said scheme had been aided by the U.S. postal system. Uh, when asked okay. about this it, at arguments, he apparently apologized. 
Um, We've all got access to grinding against the Postal Service. That's a that's a hard job. Those are civil servants, you know. There was one section of the brief called, in all, in all caps, gamesmanship. Yes. Which contains the following assertion. Quote, defendants have been gaming the system. After that, the, 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 the Seventh Circuit specifically noted, after that, there is nothing else in the gamesmanship section. That's it. Wow. It just says dependents have been gaming the system. Which, that I'm, was the whole section. I mean, I'm struggling to even understand how this gets submitted, but I mean, was this like a draft? Like he was going to fill this in later? Or that's TK, TK. Amber, right. who could say? <laughs> uh, the brief uh, it, it, The brief made an accusation of attempted murder. Uh, this is in the in the the argument or in the, uh, the the opinion in parentheses by forklift. Wow, very uh, efficient uh, murder uh, uh, weapon. It's the forklift. Tough. It reminds me of that scene in Austin Powers with the the thing, the slow moving thing. I feel like that would be the forklift. Yes, murder. Um, uh, <laughs> yes, they also claim that food at the, uh, the the Mars plant at issue could have been contaminated by quote vermin or their feces. Okay. Well, sure, it could have been. I, I mean, I, I suppose that's true in an abstract sense. Uh, the brief argued that Mars, in quote, engaged in various forms of psychological warfare. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say none of this seems like it was supported anywhere. I'd in love the to filing. know about. I'd love to know about some of the forms. I think we'd all like to know about the forms of psychological warfare. So, but... so after all this, the, the, it goes back, and the judge says there is more, but the point is made. Bad writing does not normally warrant sanctions, but we draw the line at gibberish. Uh, wow. Okay. So it's, I mean, the whole thing was amazing. It's like a, it's a, it's a, you know, you don't want to like, these things are hard. Like where you're like, there must be something going on with the, to file something like this. Like that, you know. Well, I mean, my guess is early draft that somehow accidentally Maybe. got filed. I, you know, I, I wouldn't mean, even hazard well, look, a guess, really. Yeah, it's hard to tell, but I'm just trying to make some logic out of this. And I do think about things like the first draft of something you start where maybe even just to get stuff out of your system, you have everything on I the guess. page. You know what I mean? I was talking to somebody about this and they were like, you know, you know, do you feel bad like sort of, sort of making fun of this attorney? And I, I, there is a certain level of like a threshold over which we assume attorneys should be held, right? Like, the, sure. you know, the, we invest a lot of trust in attorneys the same way that we do in ju judges. We were talking about this earlier that, 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 you know, when you file something like this, you deserve to be criticized handily. I will, I'll leave us with one really great quote that came in a footnote in the opinion. Quote, the term brief derived from the Latin brevis, meaning short, seems inapt here. <laughs> The brief is also a typographical nightmare. It uses five different fonts and various font sizes, including three different fonts in one sentence, and capitalizes words seemingly at random. You know, I was trying to make some excuses before, but I take it all back. I know. Because I five fonts and three in one sentence, that's my nightmare. We well, definitely triggered yeah. some like graphic designers out there who are just like very upset. Can you imagine guys I, sending something to our own copy desk here at Law360 with three different fonts in one sentence? Yeah. Well, they would I, die. I think I see the problem here and it's that it, th th this was not a legal brief, it was a ransom note. <laughs> right. <laughs> and they filed yeah. it on accident. This is just a, this is a classic mix-up. That explains the whole thing. I yes. would like to know if there was papyrus involved. Yeah, I mean, we'll see. I don't know. I, definitely I, we, wingdings we, is in sure. there. Yeah, yeah, we'd love to have our hands on it. All right, well, that's all I have. It was a it's a good ruling. Everyone should go read it. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for bringing that one, Bill. That's sure. the important reporting we need here on yeah, Thursday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And thanks for being with me, Alex. Thank you. 
We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. Our contributing reporters, Abra Coe, Haley Conath, Michelle Cassidy, and Chris Villani. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glassman. If you love listening to our show, take a quick second to give us a five-star review on iTunes and a written review wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear from you, and it gives us a boost so other people can find us. If you want to know more about anything we've talked about today, check out our website at law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you again next week.